Welcome to My Big Safety Challenge, a podcast all about stories of safety leadership presented by Dale Carnegie and the Board of Certified Safety Professionals. Here are your hosts, Merle Heckman and Mike Palmer. Space, the final frontier. We've got a guy that's going to talk about it today. Oh, you bet. We got Rocket Boy coming, Preston Wood. Preston is the director of EHS for Relativity Space. I'm not even going to begin to try to explain what they do. I'm going to let his, because his explanation was just fascinating. Super excited. I've had the pleasure of working with Preston and watching him grow in his career. Very young, safety and health professional. I just think he's got some great lessons with us. Excited about this. Here we go. Three, two, one. <laughs> Blast off. Left off. <laughs> And Mike, that Star Trek theme years ago, boldly going where no man's gone before, our guest today, wow. The Rocket Man. He is the Rocket Man. Yeah, we are very happy that uh, Preston Wood with Relativity Space is joining us. He's the director of EHS. Preston and I have worked together in the past. He's an impressive young man. And good morning, Preston. Good morning. Good to see you guys. I appreciate the introduction. Yeah, great to have you with us. Preston, we're always curious. How did a person like you ever choose to make your life path going into safety? I say this a lot. I don't think folks generally choose safety. I think safety kind of chooses them through a series of events throughout their career. There aren't a lot of folks who are going to college and professionals who kind of wake up and say, hey, I want to be the safety guy for a company. You know, it just kind of happens in your career. And for me, I'm actually, I was born in California. I moved to Kentucky, went to Eastern Kentucky University. I actually studied Homeland Security. It's a weird degree, I know. Eastern Kentucky is famous for their niche degree programs. And originally, I wanted to work in the intelligence field. I wanted to work in the FBI. That was my dream. And I got really lucky and got an internship for the Bluegrass Chemical Weapons Depot in the intelligence field. And I did that for two years. And I got to work with some really great people. I got my foot in the door with intelligence analysts. I got to work with uh, fusion centers. And uh, I realized that I hated it. (laughs) I really didn't like it. So another component of that Homeland Security degree outside of intelligence was emergency management. I actually got another internship with uh, Marathon Petroleum out of Texas City, Texas. That was kind of my introduction into occupational health and safety. So the emergency preparedness team worked a lot with the safety team at Marathon Petroleum. And I thought, man, that's kind of a cool job. It's kind of cool what they're doing. So that kind of gauged my interest. I had a really exciting internship in Texas City, Texas. And then I decided, why not? I got my master's degree at Eastern in occupational health and safety. And I landed my first internship from a safety perspective for a company called Jeff Boat. They were the largest inland shipbuilder in the nation. They built these barges by hand. So it was a crazy, fast-paced introduction into the safety world, a crazy different amount of hazards going on. They were building 20 barges a week, I think, at the peak. And everything has to be fitted with cranes, so large, giant sections of steel, and everything gets hand-welded together. So none of this was automated, and we had some really interesting challenges that I was exposed to at a really early point in my career. And I was really fortunate to kind of get that kickstart into the safety world. And then from there, I got my first real safety job with uh, Michael Palmer over at NSAFE. 
Yeah, that was really interesting because I got to work for just a ton of different industries. So, you know, not many safety professionals can say that they've worked for 20, 30, 40 different manufacturing style, transportation, energy industries. And and because of the work that we did at NSAFE, I had a lot of exposure and I got to work on a lot of technically deep projects that really kind of expanded my technical depth early on in my career. So I'm really fortunate for that. And that's actually how I got to California. NSAFE bought a little consulting firm in Long Beach, California and San Diego. And I got a really cool opportunity to kind of run the health and safety operations on the West Coast. So I took it. And then from there, my career kind of blossomed. I really wanted to see my work through just a little bit more. So a lot of times in consulting, you put a lot of effort into these amazing and creative, unique controls that you recommend to different clients. But oftentimes you kind of hand it to them and you walk away, right? And I really kind of wanted to see more of the fruit of those results and and help a company grow and build a safety program. So I found Relativity Space. And from there, I helped build the safety program from scratch. I was the first EHS hire. I wrote our first policy and implemented our first policy, which was our injury and illness prevention program. From there, we built what I think is a world-class safety team and and, uh, safety organization here at Relativity. Trailblazer. I tell you. (laughs) Preston, could you tell us what exactly does Relativity Space do? Relativity Space is a fully integrated rocket manufacturing and launch services provider. We build rockets for companies that want to launch satellite constellations and other payloads into low Earth orbit. And the unique thing that we do is we fully 3D print our rocket. And I promise it's not science fiction, it's real. We just sent one up into space recently and I'm sitting here in our factory. I've got a view of another one that we're building and it's actually 3D printed and we do it through two types of 3D printing technology. So one's called powder bed fusion printing, which is pretty pervasive in the aerospace industry. It's essentially laser centering metal powder into a formed part. And we use that for our propulsion and our engine components. And then the process that we invented in the context of space manufacturing is called WAM printing. So wire arc additive manufacturing. And that's essentially automated wire deposition printing. It's kind of think of like a MIG welding process where you deposit a wire into a circle and it forms unique parts. And that's actually how we print our larger tank and dome structures for the rocket. Obviously, the listeners can't see how young you are. (laughs) But if you've done this for like 20 years, 30 years, and you've done it in one plan after another, you have these presets in your mind of how to do it. I think you being as young as you are and as intelligent as you are, it gave you the ability to kind of get out of the box, right? Talk about that a little bit. What did you factor in? I mean, did you purposely throw out old standards kind of things of ways of doing things and and try to build uh, knowledge and advocates from the people you were working with or What was the key? I think about that a lot. If I had had 10, 15, 20 years of experience, would I have done things differently? It's been tough. It was really, really tough. I think what really helped me is that this industry, especially the startup space industry, really attracts young, aggressive, ambitious talent and people with grit. They want to solve the world's hardest problems. So I'm kind of in a camp with a lot of like-minded folks. None of us know what we're doing, (laughs) but we all know that we want to build the best damn product as as safely as possible, and we want to change the world. These guys want to change the world, maybe not so much me, but I'm really fortunate to work with a lot of people who have similar interests or like-minded. They're at the same point in their career. They have a lot of fresh energy that they want to pour into their jobs. 
So that's kind of the environment kind of supported me to help build out some of the things that I did. And also, I don't think there was as much of an expectation for me to be the expert in the room, even though I want to be, I really do, but we're all figuring this out. So it's okay not to know something and not to understand something as long as you're driving towards a solution that enables the team to build what they want to build safely. You know what? I'm going to pick one of uh, Merle's things. There's a Dale Carnegie principle that you just kind of did there. And, And Merle, you can jump on me if I get this wrong. The principle deals with asking questions, right? Instead of saying, hey, we need to go do this. Asking questions instead and then letting people develop those ideas and have that ownership of it. Listening to you, is that kind of what it was? Was there as much question asking as there was, hey, guys, we need to do this and this? Was it as much about just asking questions and seeing what, where they were going with it? Gosh, I wish there was a couple engineers in the room so they could answer that question for you. They're just tired of me asking questions. Okay, okay. That's all I do. I'm the question master, Mike Palmer. That's all I am. I really like to ask broad questions, and then we just start drilling down, drilling down. And usually the questions get dumber and dumber as we go, but better prepares me and educates me in solving the problem. And I think that's the important piece. As long as my silly questions are are leading to a solution, my engineers have been pretty happy to oblige and support me. But yeah, it, it didn't start that way either. You know, I came in wanting to be the expert. I've got a lot of robotics safety engineering experience and I can come in and hit the ground running. And I tried to be that subject matter expert right away and it just failed. You know, I had to take a step back, let my ego loose a little bit and, and start asking those questions and get comfortable asking those questions because so there was so much that I didn't know. It sounds like too, another principle that Carnegie encouraged, let the other person do a great deal of the talking. So rather than you being the one, you open it up and let them inform and guide on some things. Would that be accurate? That would be very accurate. As a safety person, if you get called into a meeting to help come up with potential hazards on a new process line concept, there's this impulse that you have. You want to jump in there and you want to be value add and you want to provide solutions and you want to have a reason, right? Or you want to show there's a reason they called you to this meeting. It's this impulse that Maybe it's just me. I'm always trying to fight it back because I want to listen to what they have to say. And usually just being in the room helps them know that they need to start thinking through some of these safety things. And a lot of times they already have ideas that are (laughs) always better than my ideas. All I have to do is reinforce what they're doing and maybe tweak it here and there instead of jumping in and trying to cowboy the safety part of that meeting. Which leads to another principle. Try honestly to see things from the other person's point of view rather than imposing ours. How'd you do that, Preston? Advocates and relationships. You've got to get out there. You've got to pound the pavement and you've got to get out there and meet people and talk to people. You don't want to always do it in the context of safety, especially if you're going out on an inspection and all you're doing is every time you go out, you're busting somebody's chops about safety glasses or some other safety issue, like that person's just going to get tired of seeing you. You need to go out there just with the purpose of talking to people, chatting with people, asking them about their lives, asking them about their jobs, being a sounding board for any other problems that they might be experiencing. And one thing that I try to do is leverage my relationships with the people team or leadership to like solve problems or at least put problem solving in motion that may not be directly related to safety to help folks out and be a team player. So that's kind of a a strategy that I used. You are really exemplifying another principle, become 
genuinely interested in other people. But what difference does that make for the safety professional if they do that genuinely? Well, you implement or you build policies and initiatives with empathy. You do it with an understanding of how this person works, what they may be going through, the pain points that they're having at work. Yeah, that would be my answer there. You developed that skill while your time was in Kentucky and Tennessee. That's right. That empathy and personality part, you developed it there. The Southern charm, yeah, it stuck with me. It helped. There you go. It really is being a good listener and encourage other people to talk about themselves. Because that's really it. Preston, you suppose safety folks forget that from time to time? Yeah, even the good ones, including, you know, especially me. You get caught up in the rigmarole, and especially if you're in an intense, long-hour job, you just want to be efficient, man. And you just want to get your policies written, get your training done, get everything done so you can get out of there at the end of the day. And you got to check yourself. When you build relationships with those people, they will check you. They will have that relationship with you and they will remind you like, hey, dude, you're always up in here giving me grief about one thing or another. Like, what's up? You know, and, and it kind of just humbles you a little bit and helps you to step back and see the bigger picture and kind of knocks you out of that rhythm of efficiency, right? Like there's more to it than that. You've got to take a step back and make sure you're putting time and effort into those relationships that you built and stay the course. Preston. I'm going to have you kind of recall from the past. So you remember, we've done probably a lot of machine guarding risk assessments of robots and very complicated machinery, right? You can really get lost in the whole control systems, the physical stuff, everything from fixed guarding to control systems and everything with it. But as you and I know, there's a lot that really deals with behavior that isn't about physical systems. When you're working with R&D types and engineers and they're designing systems and whatnot, do you find that most of what they're looking at is really limited to physical hazards and things that are conditions, or do they recognize the behavior part of it too? Oh, that's a really tough question. I guess like from my perspective, let's stick to the print cell example. We've got development WAM 3D print cells, and then we've got production WAM 3D print cells where we've developed a lot of the automation and it needs less interaction with technicians. So in order to develop a print cell, part of that development includes developing the safety controls that you need ultimately to work in that cell safely. And a lot of times these, they're engineering controls that need to be developed, safety laser scanners, interlocks, and you need to like, put yourself in sometimes interesting situations to install, to do that development and make sure that your robot programming matches the safety logic of that safety control function, right? So a lot of times we have to rely on behaviors, administrative controls, things like that. How we've tackled it at Relativity is we've got quite a few different administrative controls that we've built out, starting with number one, every new hire goes through this really rigorous training on robot safety, both on the job and in-person lecture training. And they actually have to show a senior robot engineer that they can follow the parameters that are set forth in all of these SOPs that we train them on. So we do rely heavily on engineering controls, and it wasn't always that way. It was pretty scrappy when we started and it didn't really exist. But over time, you know, you get a lot of that stuff comes from hiring really good and dedicated managers and supervisors that kind of see the problem and then partner with EHS to kind of put this curriculum together. 
that's something that a safety professional can't do. Like I can't go in, I'm not qualified to go in and all of these SOPs related to every single different robot function that we have in a 3D print cell. That's got to come from the department, right? The engineering team, that partnership with supervisors kind of sets the foundation for some of those behaviors that you're talking about and creating processes attached to those behaviors. Has one been a bigger struggle than the other? Is one, you know, as far as getting them to appreciate and put in engineering controls and layers of protection, right? And the things that we always work with with risk assessment, or is the behavior component a tougher one? The behavior component was the easier one for me, actually. Just by nature of the process, because we are inventing a process that there's not much for us to go by. The way that we interact with these robots and the way that robots interact with the prints, like it's just very unique and very dynamic. It's really difficult on the early stages of development, especially to come up with engineering controls or automation safety controls associated or that you would normally see in a robot cell. So we really lean in heavily and it's reinforced through leadership and our safety culture on administrative controls, alternative methods of protection or alternative protective measures, things like that to protect our folks until we get that print cell up to production speed. Preston, you have been earning the right to lead other people in safety. Sometimes when younger professionals get into the field, they struggle because of having to earn the right. What kind of advice could you give to folks like that who are wanting to get started but don't have the experiences? You just need to struggle. You have to expect that you're going to struggle and you've got to figure it out along the way. I strongly feel that especially somebody with the lack of experience like me going into leading a large team and building out a large team, you're going to have to change your behavior and adapt as you go. I don't think anybody's going to get it right the first time unless they get supremely lucky or they have just a rock star mentor at the top supporting them. Not to say that I didn't, but I still had a lot of lessons learned. I definitely struggled probably the first year that I was here. It was all about my own ego. What I was doing wasn't necessarily not working, but it wasn't having the impact that I wanted. So I had to step back, kind of hit my own reset button learn from my mistakes and start really focusing on building relationships, getting advocates, things like that. Go back to another principle. If you're wrong, admit it quickly and emphatically. How would that principle have been of a help to you along the way? We use uh, Slack as a communication tool, and I just really need to automate, I'm sorry, I say it so so much. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you got to eat crow. You've got to be the bigger person as a safety professional, especially when folks historically have like a bad taste in their mouth from a previous safety program or what it may be. Like you've got to show people that you're there, you're there for them, you're there to support the team, you're not there to implement some safety policy or be the safety superstar. Has it been a challenge recruiting and developing EHS staff for such a, you know, like you said, a new business, R&D type business? Has Has that been difficult? I would say the challenge more comes from just recruiting in in California. Mike, you've been through it. It's not a huge talent pool of EHS professionals. And so it's not even that people aren't talented here. It's just the sheer amount of applicants that you get on a job posting. It's, It's really low compared to the East Coast. But I've been really lucky and I have just a fantastic EHS staff. And frankly, I'd be remiss 
my success is from them. They really came in after that first year and a half that I was here, I started hiring tremendous EHS professionals that brought unique perspectives. And, you know, we're all kind of the same experience level. So I have to respect that, that I'm still not the SME and that's not my leadership style. I really look at these EHS professionals more as partners. A lot of times people are older than me that I manage to. So I have to come at it from an angle like, how would you do this? Help me figure this out. Help us figure this out, you know, instead of me telling them what to do. There again, ask questions instead of giving direct orders. And how do people respond to that, Preston, whether it's those folks that you're leading or even people on your floor that are doing it, when you approach them with that spirit of inquiry and asking, what do you see the response to that is? Sometimes I get worried that other departments, coworkers aren't asking that question (laughs) enough because people love to tell you what's going on in their lives, number one. People love to, they're proud of their families, they're proud of their kids, they have awesome experiences that they want to share with other people, they're curious about you, especially if you engage them the right way. People love to to chat about their lives. And one thing I actually learned at NSAFE is people love to talk about what they do for a living. I can't tell you, like, how many times I've walked up to an operator or a machinist and said, hey, man, what part are you working on? What are you doing on your HMI there? And they just get emphatic and they're like really excited that somebody asked like a basic question about what they're doing and they'll talk to you as much as you want to talk about it. And that's another way to build relationships, right? You don't go into it from a safety angle. Just ask people what they're doing and how they're doing it. Ask them to show you. And they're always generally happy to do so. Dale said, be a good listener encourage other people to talk about themselves, exactly what you were doing there. Preston, when you were in that kind of programmatic stage, right, policies and programs and developing the templates that you were using, what did you find yourself relying on? Was there some compliance guidance for you? Were there industry standards, you know, ANSI, ASME, ISO? What did you use? I kind of dual pathed two initiatives. Mike, there's just basic compliance programs you can't get around. So I knew that we needed those regardless. And those still have a tremendous amount of value. I just had to figure out like how and where and how I'm going to apply that value across the board. And then on the risk side, ANSI RIA 1506 became my Bible, especially the risk assessment function. So that's probably our biggest achievement from a risk perspective are the risk assessments that we did on those WAM cells and really kind of doing it as a team, which was great. We had stakeholders from every type of engineering associated with those robots to perform that risk assessment. We all owned it. It was a group effort, almost a committee, which is probably, looking back, not the best way to originally do it, but that's how we started it. And that's just how all these conversations started about getting enclosures around print cells and safety laser scanners and interlocks. Kind of being and questioning some of the tasks that we were doing and if they were really necessary and worth the risk and eliminating some of those tasks based on that risk. I don't want to shoot down the compliance effort either, though. I mean, we we spent a lot of time. Like I said, I built the IIPP. Next came the confined space program. Next came the lockout tagout program. And they kind of went down like dominoes. What's the bar on safety for relativity space? Is it different for your type of company? Like from a lagging indicator perspective, I would say the bar is still really, really high. The space industry as a whole has a tremendously low injury rate. Companies like Lockheed Martin, 
Northrop Grumman that have been around for decades and have extremely well-defined and mature processes have contributed to this really, really low industry average. And I made the mistake of presenting this to my boss. At the time, he was the vice president of manufacturing, and he came from SpaceX, and he's got all this experience. I showed him that number, and now that's the bar. <laughs> nice work. We will not be satisfied until we shatter that glass ceiling, which we're on track to do this year, which is great. Knock on wood. From a manufacturing perspective, it's a fourth or a fifth of the manufacturing injury rate. So it's a really high bar, low industry average, lagging indicator. Preston, I heard a while ago you all used the term stakeholders, obviously advocates. What's that look like in your industry and how vital is that? I would say if you're going to do one thing as a safety professional with a blank slate, you've got programs you've got to implement to your safety professional, you've got an, any program, anything from scratch, you need to go out and you need to find within that pool of people who are affected by that program, you've got to find your advocate. You've got to find that person who gets safety, who will have your back and who will help you out on the front line get buy-in and implement that program. And that could be through a variety of different ways. It could be your safety committee member. It could be Joe or Emily, the engineer. It could be whomever. So that's number one. And, and uh, that's probably why we've had the success here at Relativity is just getting those advocates anytime we roll something out. And then number two, from a stakeholder perspective, don't build your policies and your initiatives in a vacuum. You need to work with your affected leadership stakeholders at the start when building that policy or initiative. Once you've built it and you've already got their buy-in at this point, if they're helping you build it, right? You need to test drive it. Don't feel like you have to roll out this enterprise policy immediately. Use the tools at your disposal, work with your safety committees, whatever you have set up from a cultural standpoint and dry run that thing and get their feedback as well before you implement it. I don't recommend writing something on your own and trying to strong arm some corporate implementation because you're just going to get a lot of flack. It's not one of Carnegie's principles, but something we teach in our leadership programs. People support a world they help to create. That sounds like what you've been doing. That's my favorite principle yet. <laughs> there you go. One other thing is we hear this term or the difference between these terms, being a builder and being a maintainer. Where do you fit Ed, in that? Well, personally, by nature of where I'm working, I'm a builder. Everything that we've done here, my team especially, everybody on my team, we're a team of builders. We've built everything from scratch. And we're finally, finally, finally getting to the point where we can continuously improve what we've built, which is really nice. It's a new phase of, of maturity for our, our EHS department, which is really exciting and refreshing a lot of our policies and programs. And we're building processes to refresh those things that kind of scale for us. So it's been really exciting to kind of shift. In my opinion, we're still in the builder phase. I wish I could show you guys the factory. Literally, it's being built. We've got construction everywhere. <laughs> it's just it's all kinds of chaos. You know, there's a lot of safety health professionals when they look at and measure their success, right? A lot of times they're looking at the program, leading indicators, lagging indicators, you know, the full works. And they celebrate when there's great performance from the safety aspect. Talk to me about the kind of celebration of what you guys are doing there as a whole and how you feel about that versus and in combination with the safety performance of the company. Does that make sense? Kind of, kind of look at relativity and what it is trying to accomplish and has accomplished. 
what you attach to that as far as feelings of success versus looking myopically just at the safety performance of the company. Personally, how you feel about that? Personally, I feel like I've been mission-driven. Like everybody else in this company, we've had everybody's fingerprints around that first rocket that launched, right? That's just who I am as an individual. I was really attracted once I learned more about Relativity's mission and, and I became mine, it became ours as a collective company, right? So that's kind of how I treat my day-to-day from a safety perspective is like, how can we enable Relativity to print rockets as safely and fast as possible? Those guys want to go out there and they just want to build. So how do we enable them? And that's kind of the mantra of our safety team. And it's actually on our 2023 strategy. We want to enable Relativity to have a space they feel safe and they can be creative and they can invent and build in. I think just the joy and attachment and ownership you feel in Relativity's mission, right? And I will tell you, I mean, that's kind of unique because there is so many people that are in our field and where they attach success to is the safety program and the leading or lagging indicators they have with that. And not necessarily on the business's mission, but you are very, very in, you're all in on their mission and vision. I mean, it's a pioneering type thing. I get it. It's great. Well, Marat, I think he's ready. Yeah, I think he's ready. Oh, we doing rapid fire? Oh, we're going rapid fire. We're going. Okay, I'm ready. Tighten your seatbelt. Yeah, here we go. Three questions, and uh, I want the short and sweet answers to these, right? First thing that comes to your mind. Got it. All right, so the first one. As a very seasoned and senior health and safety professional, nice. When you look at your career so far and things you've done, give me the high moment. You know, that time when you just went, oh my God, that was great. This is exactly what I wanted. This was it. This was it. Two things. Number one, I had this feeling recently, which is awesome. We've kind of hired our team out. So we've gone through this scaling process. We've gone from one to 11 and about to be 12 EHS professionals. Gosh, dang, they're a good team. They're real freaking good. And uh, they get after it every single day. They forced me to be a better leader and a better EHS professional. That has been the best feeling for me. And then I got to watch our rocket launch in person. I was in the emergency operations center at Cape Canaveral, supporting as our emergency coordinator if we had a not so great launch attempt. So I was shaking in my boots because it would have been a lot of negative action had we not had a successful launch. Yeah, going from fear and adrenaline to raw happiness in a matter of seconds, uh, watching that thing go up in person and being there with Space Force and government partners who have seen SpaceX do this week in and week out, they were saying it was the most special launch that they've been a part of. So that was just a high moment for me. And I feel really lucky to just have that experience. I don't think a lot of people get that feeling in their whole life. I don't know. I got it two, three months ago. So it was awesome. Your first answer was just absolutely fantastic. It felt awesome to hear you say that and how you put it. Just fantastic. All right. Now I want the low moment. Give me the low moment when you felt like, man, I just, I didn't get that right. I would say it was a long feeling. Not only did I not know what I was doing, not to say not know what I was doing from a safety perspective, but I just wasn't there yet at the very beginning. And then I took on facilities team and then I took on the logistics team and I took on the corporate security team. It was just days of like having zero validation 
if I'm doing something right months. I think that feeling just when you're working in a company with that type of ambiguity, that feeling was probably pervasive amongst everybody. So I wasn't alone, but it felt lonely. It was scary. I was scared for employees. I was scared that I was going to break something. I'm not mechanically inclined. And here I am managing a facilities team. And I was scared people weren't going to respect me or trust me. And there was just a lot of fear. It just slowly ebbs away as you get your grip around it. It was probably like not necessarily a specific moment, but you know, a length of time where it was just really tough. That was authentic and real, brother. Very good. All right. Last, last. So uh, the next young gun safety professional that's out there trying to make their way and be the next Preston Wood. <laughs> Give me a couple pearls of wisdom for them. If you look back at what you've done and you want to advise someone that's up and coming, what couple pieces of advice would you give them? Strategize. Don't build things in a vacuum. Advocates, stakeholders, and dry run your product, right? Whatever you're building, dry run it. And then also don't be afraid to take risks. Sometimes you got to make a decision. People are looking at you to make decisions and you just got to use your best judgment and go with it. Beautiful. What do you think, Merle? He's a special guy, huh? Preston, thank you for being willing to come on. What a life message that you're developing as you go, but what you're sharing with other people. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. This was super fun, and I'm happy to come back on anytime if you'll have me. Thanks. Take care, guys. Good luck. Bye-bye. What a young man who stepped in and stepped up. I expected a lot of that interview. The intrigue with the process and his ownership, too. That was fantastic. What I didn't expect, and I thought was just fantastic, was the vulnerability he showed when he didn't know necessarily what to do, right? And then how he worked building those advocates and asking the questions, but being vulnerable enough to say, hey, this is what I need to do. Here was a guy that was smart enough to know when he wasn't smart enough and tap into other people and let it be a team effort. Notice what he said, when that rocket went off, we all had our fingerprints on that rocket. Solid. And the pride he has in building that EHS staff and what he gives to them as far as their abilities and how they build him, just fantastic. I'm excited about continuing to watch his career grow. Thanks for listening to My Big Safety Challenge, a podcast produced in partnership by Dale Carnegie and BCSP. With your hosts, Dale Carnegie Master Trainer, Merle Heckman, and Mike Palmer, Principal at NSAFE. Executive produced by Charlie Eltringham. Supervising producer, Michael Escobedo. Audio engineering and editing from Jesse Gray and Giachi Liu. Editorial support from Tyson Matthews. Consulting producers are Colin Brown and Mark Sullivan. To have new episodes delivered directly to you, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. If you would like to share your story of a safety leadership challenge you faced, email us at info at mybigsafetychallenge.com. See you next time.